Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is Friday, January 17th, 2020. And this evening I am going to present part 41 of my commentary on the Gospel of John. It is titled, God Glorified. I really sort of struggled with the title for tonight's program. I wanted to make it more elaborate than that and couldn't squeeze the concept into just a few words. All Christians can profess to glorify God, but only identity Christians can know exactly how and why God should be glorified. Presenting the final portion of John chapter 16, we discuss the consolation of expectation as Christians encompassed by a world of sin certainly should find their consolation in an expectation of the fulfillment of the promises of Yahweh their God. And in turn, that should be the substance of their faith. Yahweh God is glorified. When man realizes that he keeps his promises and comes to understand that he is true. Abraham was made an example as Yahweh had spoken to his son Isaac and explained that his father was blessed because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham had done those things because he believed Yahweh. As we read in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. In that same manner, if we believe God and keep his commandments, it shall be counted to us for righteousness. We find this where Paul speaking of Abraham's seed or offspring, had said in that same chapter that righteousness might be imputed unto them also who walk in the steps of that faith of Abraham our father. That faith of Abraham was his belief that God would indeed keep his promises. There were certain earlier promises made to the wider Adamic race, which Yahweh shall not abandon. But when we examine the promises, which are the substance of the faith of Abraham, because they are what Abraham had believed, we find that the promises of God in Christ concerning the offspring of Abraham through Jacob Israel concerned them exclusively, and that the seed of Israel, which were the subject of those promises, would inherit the Adamic world, becoming many nations. This certainly did happen in antiquity, and those nations are described in Scripture, and it is also evident in the actions and letters of the apostles that they were the intended recipients of the gospel. They are the object of the faith, because they are what Abraham believed 
that God was able to do for him in spite of the apparent impossibility. That is the circumstance under which Isaac was born the subject of the promises which were later bestowed upon Jacob. So, true Christians, the descendants of those nations which came from Jacob Israel, continue to believe that Yahweh God will keep his promises. And for that reason, they should keep his commandments as Abraham had also done. Christians should keep the commandments not to attain salvation, but they should desire to keep them because they already have an assurance of salvation, as we discussed in our last presentation, the higher calling. This is the very theme of Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapters 4 through 6. One conclusion made by Paul is in the opening verses of chapter 5, where he wrote, Therefore, being justified by faith, the faith of Abraham, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yahshua Christ had said, If you love me, keep my commandments. So we must endeavor to do so, even if we sometimes fail. As the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, in chapter 2. My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not sin. And if one should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ, and he is a propitiation on behalf of our sins, yet not for ours only, but for the whole society, or the whole world. The words whole society or whole world do not preclude the exclusivity of the covenant of Christ, which was made only for the children of Israel. Rather, in Isaiah chapter 27, Yahweh stated his purpose for the last days and said in part that he shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. True Christians must also believe that Yahweh will keep this promise, as he had also kept it in the past, and that is all the more reason why they should endeavor to keep his commandments. For this reason also, according to the word of God, the twelve tribes of Israel are the whole world. As the wisdom of Solomon attests, as the wisdom of Solomon attests in chapter 18, where he wrote of the breastplate of the high priest, and he said, For in the long garment was the whole world. That garment only had those four rows of stones, which represented the twelve tribes of Israel. For in the long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the Father's graven, and thy majesty upon the diadem of his head. 
because the name of Yahweh was written upon that diadem. But as we had also discussed while presenting the earlier portion of John chapter 16, keeping the commandments of God causes us to face the inevitability of persecution as the enemies of our God actually hate those who keep his commandments. In our society today, Christians are being served with lawsuits when they refuse to entertain the perversions of devils and sodomites. But tomorrow, they may face imprisonment for that same thing. Paul of Tarsus, in the opening chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, spoke of this challenge which Christians would face, where he wrote, advising them to conduct yourselves worthily of the good message of the anointed, or of Christ, if you will, that you stand in one spirit, in one soul, together striving in the faith of the good message, and in nothing being frightened, being frightened by the opposition, which to them is an indication of destruction, but of your preservation, and this from Yahweh, because to you it has been offered concerning Christ, not only to believe in him, but also in behalf of him to suffer, having that same struggle like you have seen with me and now you hear of with me. So when we keep the faith and the commandments of God, by that we have an indication of our own preservation, that our salvation is certain. Then at the same time, when we keep his commandments, which is what it means to conduct yourselves worthily of the gospel of Christ. To the enemies of our God, that is an indication of their coming destruction. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the gainsaying of Korah, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, and ultimately the rebellion of the fallen angels are all related phenomena. And Balaam had encouraged the king of Moab to entice the children of Israel away from the commandments of Yahweh by instructing his women to sexually seduce them and lure them into fornication. And yes, that's Numbers 25. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul of Tarsus referred to that same event as fornication. Today, this has happened once again, as Sodom and Gomorrah are everywhere. Sodomy and fornication now represent the officially approved morality of the state, and this new state morality is upheld by law. In fact, in the United States, it is now being argued that the word for sex in the so-called Civil Rights Act which was originally used only to indicate gender, also protects the so-called sexual orientation of sodomites and other sinners. By this method, sodomites boldly seek to make themselves a legally protected class as they seek to force themselves and their perversions upon the whole society. So when God-fearing Christians speak out against the sin, it is 
the Christians who are made into demons. Just as the enemies of Christ had accused him of having a demon. This is the extent to which the woman of the to which the woman of the revelation has joined herself to the beast, as even in the world of the devil, it is the husband who makes the rules for the house. But when Christians remain steadfast, as Paul had said to the Philippians, then to our enemies, that alone is an indication of their ensured destruction. As Christians are promised victory over all of the enemies of God, if indeed they endure to the end. That is why Christ had said, as we read in Luke chapter 18, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? But it is not just a general belief for which he is looking. The same Christ who made that statement had also said in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name have done many wonderful works. Yet he chases them away because he never knew them. So a professed belief in him is not what he expects. Rather, it is evident that he hopes to find the substance of a particular faith and not merely faith itself. He also expects that a particular people would have that faith as he had only come for those whom he has foreknown and predestined, rejecting those whom he has not known, even if they profess a belief in him. Very few Christians today actually understand the faith of Abraham, because it is not taught in state churches. But the promises and covenants of God, as God had stated them, shall not fail. In that shall God be glorified. He shall be glorified according to his own word. And Abraham did not believe in chinks, niggers, Jews, squat monsters, or any other alien variety of animal posing as people. That's just the way it is. Abraham believed in his seed, people after his image and likeness, as he was in the image and likeness of God. In Malachi chapter 4, the prophet describes for us the purpose of the Elijah ministry, the ministry which must precede his coming. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This describes the importance of covenant theology. The substance of the covenants must be the primary focus of any valid 
Christian theology since they are the very reason for Christianity. We read in the opening chapter of Luke the purpose of the coming of Christ. In the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the word began. So we understand Christianity through those holy prophets, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So we also read in the 86th Psalm, which is attributed to David, all nations whom thou hast made, because Yahweh certainly didn't make all nations, all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O the Lord, and shall glorify thy name. Yahweh did not make nations of bastards. And many of the nations in modern history are certainly nations of bastards. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Yahweh. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. Then we also read in Romans chapter 15, where we may see that this has not changed after the passion of the Christ. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. For that cause, as Paul then proceeded to explain, the nations, the nations which he had already described in Romans chapter 4, which came of the seed of Jacob, should rejoice and celebrate their God because he keeps his promises. That is the consolation of our expectation, and it should be all the consolation we need each day that we arise and go out into the world of the devil. But there is more, as Paul also explained, that the fulfillment of the promises is the reason why God should be glorified. Just before Paul made that explanation, the explanation that Christ came to confirm the promises made to the fathers, that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. So if something is not in the promises to the fathers, Christ would not confirm it. He said, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. 
Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, excuse me, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why should we glorify God? Because we have the patience and comfort of the scriptures and the fulfillment of the promises to the fathers in Christ. That's why Paul is saying we should glorify God. And he proceeds and says, Wherefore you receive one another, as Christ also re received us to the glory of God. And then, immediately after explaining in the very next verse that Christ came to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 9, and that the nations might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the nations, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye nations, with his people. And again, Praise Yahweh, all ye nations, and loud him, all ye people. So Paul was explaining that the reason why God should be glorified is for keeping his promises to the fathers and for that reason extending his mercy to the nations, the nations of the children of Israel in spite of their sins. But there is some confusion where in most modern translations the word Gentiles replaces a word which literally and plainly means nations. As Paul had explained earlier in chapter 4 of that same epistle, those fathers are indeed the fathers of the nations which Paul had expected to glorify God, as those nations were indeed the actual offspring, the actual seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel, for which reason Paul had brought them the gospel of Christ in the first place. In Romans chapter 15, verses 9 to 11, which we've just read, Paul had quoted from 2 Samuel chapter 22, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, and from the 117th Psalm from passages which all pertained to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, which were already being identified as nations. The full passage, which Paul had cited from Deuteronomy chapter 32, is a part of the Song of Moses, which says, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. And that with was added to the text in the King James Version, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. I'm sorry, I have a little gas. Then in Romans chapter 15, verse 12, Paul cited Isaiah chapter 11 and said, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse and he that shall rise to reign over the nations, in him shall the nations trust. 
That passage is from a messianic prophecy concerning the reconciliation of the outcasts of Israel to Yahweh their God, who had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would indeed become many nations. Those promises were fulfilled in their captivity. So Isaiah wrote in the very next verse, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Christ was that ensign. As he said, that Moses raised the serpent in the desert, so shall the Son of Man be raised. Christ, Christ himself, was that ensign. Another place where we may see this assertion clarified that Yahweh should be gloried in the fulfillment but when we realize that he has fulfilled his promises. Thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. This is found in Isaiah chapter 26. Thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. Thou hast increased the nation, seeing that the children of Israel would be increased, would become many nations in their captivity. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. The children of Israel became those many nations in the captivities as they escaped from the lands of captivity where they were resettled by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and they went north and west, as Jeremiah informs us and other prophets inform us. They went north and west, and some of them went east into Europe and Eurasia. Again, Isaiah chapter 26 Yahweh is glorified in the fulfillment of his promises, even if those promises are fulfilled as the children of Israel were being punished for their sins. The later chapters of Isaiah, as well as the epistles of the apostles and the book of Acts, inform us that those nations had formed in Europe and the ancient Near East and ancient histories found in inscriptions and classical writings concur. I could probably add Central Asia to that list, the part of Asia adjacent to Europe, where the Masagete and the, a good portion of the Sake had remained for many centuries until they too migrated into Europe. The Near East is where the Parthians had blossomed over the subsequent centuries, and they were descended from the Israelites. Even Mary, the mother of the Christ, is recorded as having exclaimed the purpose of his coming in Luke chapter 1. He has holpen, the King James Version uses an archaic word, which simply means helped. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham 
and to his seed forever. Yahweh helped his servant Israel by assuring their salvation and assuring the destruction of his enemies. So we read in a vision of that same thing in Isaiah chapter 24, that the children of Israel shall glorify him for his judgment. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of Yahweh. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye Yahweh in the fires, the trials which they were to go through in their captivity. Even the name of Yahweh, God of Israel, in the isles of the sea. From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. Thus we also read in Psalm 50, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, thou shalt glorify me. When we are delivered from our enemies, we will glorify God. Now, as we proceed with John chapter 17, we shall once again explain that as John records it here, upon completing the famous so-called Last Supper that was in John chapter 13, which is the Passover meal which Christ had shared with his disciples, he engaged with them in a discourse which continues until John chapter 18 where he is arrested shortly after they enter into the garden at Gethsemane. This discourse began at the home where they had their meal, and at the end of John chapter 14, they departed from that home, which was evidently in Jerusalem. And the conversation continues as they are apparently walking to the Mount of Olives. In Acts chapter 1, Luke had described this walk as a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, which was apparently about two miles. Then, as John describes it, in the opening of chapter 18 of his gospel, they reach their destination as Christ finishes this discourse in the closing verses of John chapter 17. Therefore, we can only imagine that they are still walking here, and since the discourse is long, and other Gospels describe portions of it which John had not included here, we may also imagine that they may have stopped several times along the way. Throughout this discourse, Christ had been informing his disciples of his imminent departure from them, and he offered them both warnings concerning what they would face after his departure and consolations in regard to the ultimate reward that they would attain in exchange for their sufferings. Then in the closing verses of John chapter 16, he told them that in spite of their professed belief, that they would be scattered. And he explained to them that these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now we continue from that point, commencing with John chapter 17. Having spoken these things, Yahshua, then lifting his eyes to heaven, 
said, Father, the hour has come. Honor your son that the son may honor you. In the introduction to this chapter, we repeatedly see the word glorify. But here in our translation, we have honor. The Greek word doxazo, according to Liddell and Scott, is primarily to think, imagine, or suppose, to form or hold an opinion, and then to magnify or extol. So, in the passive voice, they explain that it may mean to be distinguished or to be held in honor or magnified. Like many other words, we have translated it in the Christiania New Testament in a manner so as to demystify it, as many denominational church doctrines are founded upon rather esoteric definitions of words. For example, in church language and doctrine, there is a concept of something called doxology, from the Greek word doxa, which is the root of this verb, doxazo. This doxology is defined as a liturgical formula of praise to God. We do not believe that we need formulas to offer praise to God, as they represent nothing more than rituals. Formulas are bullshit. They're rituals. The Greek word doxa, which we usually translate as honor, is literally an expectation, notion, an opinion, or a judgment. It's what you have when you make up your mind about something or have an opinion of something. So Liddell and Scott explained that it was used to describe the opinion which others have of one, estimation or repute, and for that reason, it was mostly used in a positive sense as good repute or honor or glory, and was only rarely used to describe something of ill repute. So we honor or glorify our God in what we truly think of him. Here Christ commences with a prayer, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of his disciples, so that after the events which are about to transpire, they may better understand his purpose, something which he had already told them himself. As we have often explained, Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate. Although he often speaks of other manifestations of himself in the second and third persons, ostensibly because he lives as an example to men. So we read in the word of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 44, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, the nations which God has made. Thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing ye, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, 
ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Yahshua Christ, Yahweh incarnate, glorified himself by giving himself on behalf of the children of Israel, by which it was possible to be reconciled to them, thereby in turn keeping his promises to the fathers in spite of their sins. So the scriptures also tell us repeatedly and explicitly why God should be glorified. In a vision of the coming Messiah, where the word of God addresses the children of Israel in the places of their captivity, we read in Isaiah chapter 49, Listen, O Isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from afar. Yahweh has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, has he made mention of my name. This is a prophecy of Mary, the mother of Christ. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand has he hid me, meaning Christ himself, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver has he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This refers to Christ as well as to Israel collectively. So it can refer to Rebekah as well as Mary. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with Yahweh and my work with my God. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant. And here we have the prophecy, the dual meaning of the prophecy in Christ himself. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet I shall be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. A prophecy with dual meaning. Here we may also see that even if the struggle seems futile, in the end there will be victory. Speaking of the coming Redeemer, Isaiah had written that my judgment is with Yahweh and my work with my God. And now Christ tells his disciples virtually that same thing where he is addressing God. Just as you have given to him authority over all flesh, that all which you have given him, to them he would give eternal life. Yahshua Christ, Yahweh God incarnate as man, has authority over all flesh. But what he does with that authority is explained in other scriptures, such as Revelation chapter 19, where he has promised that he will ultimately destroy all of his enemies. Or in Revelation chapter 2, where he states that he shall destroy the offspring, the children of fornicators. Or in Matthew chapter 25, where he explains that all of the goat nations shall have their destiny in the same everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not all spirits are good spirits. As we read in Matthew chapter 8, that there were many that were possessed with devils, and therefore Christ had 
cast out the spirits with his word. Or in Revelation chapter 16, where we read of the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth under the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Yet Moses had addressed Yahweh as the God of the spirits of all flesh, where he wrote in Numbers chapter 27, And Moses spoke unto Yahweh, saying, Let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of Yahweh be not as sheep which have no shepherd. At this, another Yahshua, known more familiarly as Joshua, the son of Nun, was appointed to the office. But this was also a prophecy, as Joshua is indeed a type for Yahshua Christ. Ultimately, Yahshua Christ is the man set over the congregation, the New Testament in Christ, replacing the Old Testament law, rituals, and priesthood in Moses. While Joshua was a replacement for Moses temporally, meaning in this world, the transcendental meaning is a prophecy of Christ. So Paul made the comparison between Christ and Moses in Hebrews chapter 3. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, speaking to true Israelites, not to Jews who claim to be Hebrews, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, meaning Christ, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. Christ is he who built the house. Moses is only a part of the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Christ is the God who built the house, meaning the people of Israel, and would therefore rule as a son over his own house. He may also be the God of all flesh, but as Paul of Tarsus said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all flesh is not the same flesh, where his epistle also reveals that all flesh does not have the same purpose. Here in these verses of John chapter 17, Yahshua Christ is praying in the immediate sense in an appeal to the Father for all which you have given him. And it becomes evident that he is speaking primarily of the disciples who were present with him. This is the context of the verses which follow. However, later on, he clarifies his full intent and purpose, where he says in verse 20, 
I do not ask for these alone, but also for those believing in me through their word, that they would all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also would be in us in order that society would believe that you have sent me. So where Christ makes his appeal for all which the Father had given him, the meaning is broader than the immediate circumstance of his disciples, as they were already told earlier in the discourse of this evening that they would bear witness to the gospel. So in order to learn the identity of those whom Christ speaks here, which are all that God had given him, we must examine the prophecies of the Old Testament to see who it is that God gave to him. One example is found in a messianic prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 7, 37, where we find the, that only the children of Israel are given to him. This was written long after most of the children of Israel were taken into captivity, but describes the children of of Israel and the children of Judah being reunited into one stick. And then it says in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21, and say unto them, thus saith Yahweh God, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen where they be gone and will gather them on every side and will bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all, neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them so that they shall be my people and I will be their God. And David, my servant, which is a type for Christ, this is a, a, a messianic prophecy of Christ, as he's called David in several prophecies, and David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. So these are the people that Yahweh gave to Christ, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that's it. And they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also, which is the body of Christ himself, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen, or more appropriately, the nations, the nations of Israel, shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, 
meaning separate them from everybody else, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. The children, which were given to Christ, were those who had survived the punishments of ancient Israel in the captivities, as we read in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 8, from verse 13, Sanctify Yahweh of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense, to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Because the Israelites and Judeans who rejected Christ stumbled. But the Edomites pretending to be Jews and living in Jerusalem, <laughs> to them he was a jinn and a snare. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon Yahweh that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion, while the disciples of Christ in Judea were for signs and wonders in Israel, the message also had a transcendental significance for both the houses of Israel, for all of Israel and Judah. Paul of Tarsus cites this very passage in chapter 2 of his epistle to the Hebrews, interpreting it in that same manner where he wrote, For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In other words, if they refused his sanctification, they might still be his brethren, but they would be but he would be ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, even before they become sanctified. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. For which person they are genetic, for which reason they are genetic brethren, not just fellow believers. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me, Isaiah 8.18, which we have just cited. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. In other words, God came incarnated as one of the children of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. In that passage, 
every single reference which Paul makes can apply only to the offspring of the ancient children of Israel. They are the house over which Christ shall rule, and God will be glorified when his people finally realize that he has kept even his most ancient promises. For that reason, God should be glorified. Now, as we would interpret these words in the transcendental sense, Christ describes how those children would come to acknowledge the eternal life which they are destined to inherit. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is the eternal life, that they may know you are the only true God and whom you have sent, Yahshua Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 31, where there is an explicit promise of a new covenant, we see that we see what Christ is referring to here. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be their peop my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If Christ forgave our sins, then Christ is Yahweh God. This prophecy began to be fulfilled in the immediate sense, along with the words of Christ here, as soon as he was resurrected and the apostles realized the implications of his resurrection, thereby announcing that he is God incarnate who had come to redeem Israel. If Christ redeemed Israel, then he must be God incarnate, as Yahweh had said in Isaiah chapter 44. Thus saith Yahweh the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, that's the same Yahweh, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Then Yahweh said to the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 49, and all flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One in Jacob. So once again, we see that God is glorified when the children of Israel find that he kept his promises. So Christ says that they may know that you are the only true God. And... I could say, you are whom you have sent, Yahshua Christ. And that's a fair interpretation of those words. I have honored you upon the earth, completing the work which you have given me that I should do. We have already cited Hebrews chapter 2 and explained that Paul had cited Isaiah chapter 8, which described 
I and the children which God has given me. In that same passage, Paul cited the 22nd Psalm, in yet another messianic prophecy, where we read, Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. My darling, meaning my life. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. Ye that fear Yahweh, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. Nobody else has that call. So it is evident that in the coming of the Messiah and in his passion, Yahweh would be glorified and through him, the children of Israel would learn to glorify their God. Christ, knowing this, knew that his death in his death and resurrection, he would be glorified so that ultimately Yahweh God would be glorified. In Acts chapter 3, Peter later chastised some of the men of Israel who had gone along with the enemies of Christ and informs them that the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate. They were all, whether they were Edomites or Israelites, everybody present there was responsible for this. When he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God had raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now Christ prays, anticipating his glorification in that very manner. And now you honor me, Father, or you glorify me in the King James Version, with yourself in the honor which I had with you before the existing society. That's a very literal translation. The verb ainahi which is existing here, is a present tense active infinitive form of imi, which is to be. The clause may have been rendered literally before the society is, but not, as many translations have it, before the world was. Even if that may be a better way to express it, in colloquial English. As Paul of Tarsus informs us in his epistles to the Hebrews and the Colossians, Yahweh God is invisible, and therefore God has no natural physical manifestation unless he creates one for himself. So he made the burning in the bush for Moses. Christ is the manifestation of God as man. But before Christ was born as a man, the physical manifestation of God was represented by that first light, which was created as it is described in Genesis chapter 1. Now, as John proclaimed in the opening chapter of his gospel, even though he has assumed for himself the body of a man in Christ, he is still the light come into the world. Paul wrote of God the Father in Colossians chapter 1 and said that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, 
even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Christ is firstborn of every creature because he is God, because he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, because it was his plan from the beginning to manifest himself within his own creation. And he is literally also the first of creation because the first creation of light in Genesis chapter 1 is a representation of his physical manifestation. He is that light because that light represents him before he became incarnate as a man. And he is that light because he is truth and he is the ultimate source of all light. Being an Adamic man, as well as a descendant of the first Adam. Therefore, Christ is also a son in the sense of being an element of that creation. However, he is also God incarnate, being made both in the image of God and as a representation of God in the natural world. So although he was not born first in the natural sense, Paul of Tarsus could nevertheless explain that he is the firstborn among many brethren, in Romans chapter 8. Christ continues his prayer. I have made manifest your name to the men whom you have given me from out of society. They were with you and said to me, I'm sorry, they were with you and to me you have given them and they kept your word. Here Christ expressly indicates that he has fulfilled the words of David, which we have already cited from the 22nd Psalm. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. In his sacrifice, he also fulfilled those of the 54th Psalm. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto mine enemies, cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and mine eye has seen his desire upon mine enemies. But speaking of his disciples, as Christ says here that they were with you and to me you have given them and they kept your word. He seems to be indicating a fulfillment of a statement which David made in the 61st Psalm. For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. In that sense, Christ would indeed inherit all those who fear the name of Yahweh. Again, continuing with his prayer. Now they have known that all as many things as you gave to me are from you, because the words which you have given to me I gave to them, and they have received, and they know truly that I have come out from you, and they believe that you have sent me very much like the testimony of Peter recorded in Matthew chapter 16.
we have a fuller profession as it is recorded in John chapter 6, where Peter had said to Christ that thou hast the words of eternal life, the words which came from God, as Christ says here. Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ. Thou art that Christ. Thou art the Christ which was expected to come. Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Likewise, Christ had told them earlier this same evening in John chapter 16, in verse 27, For the Father himself loved you because you have loved me, and you have believed that I came out from God. Continuing with his prayer in John chapter 17, verse 9, I ask for them. I do not ask for society or for the world, but for those whom you gave to me, because they are with you and all which are mine and yours and yours mine, and I am honored by them. Two manuscripts have um, significant variations in verse 10. The Codex Sinaiticus has verse 10 to read only, and you have given them to me, and I am honored by them. The 5th century Codex Bese has, and all which are mine are yours, and yours mine, and by them you have honored me. They have already honored or glorified Yahshua, simply because they have professed for him to be the Messiah and because they have done all that he had asked of them. Because he did all that he asked of them, they demonstrated that they actually did believe that he was the Messiah, or Christ, and because they esteemed him to be Christ, in that alone they honored him, according to the original meaning of the word doxazo, to think, imagine, or suppose, or also to hold or form an opinion of something or someone. Their opinion of him, that he was the Christ, that alone was sufficient honor. Believing him is sufficient honor. And no longer, verse 11, and no longer am I in society, yet they are in society, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you gave to me, that they would be one just as we. Where Christ says, which you gave to me, he is referencing the men whom Yahweh had given him, and not the name. Yahshua Christ had the spirit of Yahweh within him, since he is Yahweh incarnate. However, man was created with the intent that God may dwell in him, which is a promise that is only fulfilled once man is obedient to God. The deposit of the spirit of which Paul had often spoke and which first century Christians received when they received the Holy Spirit is representative of this indwelling of God within man. For that reason, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, but you are not in flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He has nothing to do with him.
And then, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And in verse 16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. For this, Christ had said in John chapter 14, that if a man loves me, he will keep my words, which includes his commandments. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Evidently, when God chooses in this manner to dwell within a man, the man becomes one with God. Notice that Christ said, no longer am I in society, already reckoning himself to be absent, apparently because his departure was imminent. In verse 9, he had said, I do not ask for society, but for those whom you gave to me. The King James Version has verse 9 to read, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. With this it must be realized that the world which Christ had come to save and the world which he would not pray for are two different worlds. And here he basically repudiates the world, distinguishing it from his disciples, where he says, for they are thine, because the world wasn't. Later, as we would translate his words, the Apostle John would write in chapter 5 of his first epistle that we know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one, quoting the Christiania New Testament, because I believe it's clearer than the King James. Yet we know that the Son of Yahweh has come and gave to us an understanding that we may know the truth and we are in the truth. If you're a true son of God, you are in the truth. You are part of the truth. If you're a bastard, you, your very existence, is basically a lie. And we are in the truth among the number of his son, Yahshua Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. In that passage, John certainly seems to be evoking the discourse of Christ here in this chapter. Christ certainly did not come to save the world, which we perceive as it now exists, but all things having originally been made through him, he certainly shall save the world which he created. Continuing with verse 12. When I was with them, I kept and I guarded them in your name, which you gave to me, and not one from among them is lost, except the son of destruction, in order that the writing would be fulfilled. Once again, just so there is no confusion while reading this passage, Christ kept and guarded the people which God had given him, and not the name. The wording is a little difficult. I think it could be easily misunderstood. Some manuscripts have whom you have given me instead of which you have given me. The pronoun being more clear, I guess, so that the error could not be made. Referring to the son of destruction, Christ must be speaking and praying in the context of the immediate circumstances. 
as Judas Iscariot had gone off shortly prior to this discourse in order to betray him. That this is indeed the correct context governing the scope of this statement is evident in the surrounding verses, and especially in verse 20, where Christ continues to pray and says, I do not ask for these alone, again referring to those who were present with him at that time. In John chapter 6, Christ had made the assertion that one of the twelve which he had chosen was a devil. And there, in a parenthetical remark, John explained that he was speaking of Judas. Discussing that passage, we made the assertion that Judas must have been an Edomite or Edomian and gave other evidence to support that claim. Here Christ refers to Judas as a son of destruction. And Paul had made a similar analogy of the Edomites in general in Romans chapter 9, where he compared Jacob and Esau, where he then described the children of Jacob as vessels of mercy, but the children of Esau as vessels of destruction. As we see in Matthew chapter 26, in an account of an exchange from earlier this same evening, as they were still at their Passover meal, Christ had said that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Christ continues his prayer to the Father. But now I come to you, and I say these things in society or in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And we've spoken frequently here in these past several chapters of the joy which the apostles would have once they realize that he was resurrected and all of the scriptural implications of that resurrection. As we have already also discussed here in Luke chapter 1, where his gospel record records, where his gospel records the declarations made by Mary, the mother of Christ, and Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, as the birth of Christ had approached. Each of them had rejoiced that Yahweh had come to help the children of Israel, to have mercy on Israel in remembrance of the covenants which Yahweh had with Israel. This help, as Zechariah had put it, was that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. The apostles had expected the risen Christ to restore the kingdom to Israel immediately, but he only told them that it was not yet time, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1. This is still the expectation and hope of Israel, as Paul had also mentioned the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers in Acts chapter 26, and the hope of Israel in Acts chapter 28. This aspect of that hope is described in Joel chapter 3, from verse 16. Yahweh also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. 
But Yahweh will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am Yahweh your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. In that and most other end times prophecies, Jerusalem and Zion represent the people of Israel and not the places in Palestine. There are Judaized commentators in the denominational churches, and sadly even in Christian identity, who accept the Jewish theory that there will be two messiahs, a theory which they contrived because they reject Christ as Messiah. In Zechariah chapter 9 we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This was indeed a prophecy of Yahshua Christ, but it went on to describe the ultimate reason why the people should rejoice. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the nations, ostensibly the nations of Israel, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. At the time of Christ, verse 9 of that passage was fulfilled, but not verse 10, as the children of Israel have forever been at war. But in Zechariah chapter 14, we see a messianic vision of vengeance. Behold, the day of Yahweh cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. That's exactly what's going on today as spicks, chinks, and niggers and a variety of other sorts of beasts take our women, take our property, the, the rampant crime in our cities. This is going on right now. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, where they already are for the most part, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city because they, all this is being done to them in the name of peace. And then shall Yahweh go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in a day of battle. When we presented, and, and, and this is what the Jews and Judaized Christians see as a separate or second Messiah, when it's actually what Christ himself had promised at his return in the Revelation. When we presented our commentaries on the final chapters of Zechariah, here just over three years ago, we dubbed him both prophet of the Revelation and prophet of the Holocaust, meaning the Holocaust that's yet to come, because he was indeed foreshadowing the revelation of Yahshua Christ. And Zechariah chapter 14 will not be fulfilled until Christ returns to keep his promise as it is also described in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. The Jerusalem in Zechariah chapter 14 is not the Edomite city in Palestine, 
Rather, it is symbolic of the Christian camp of the saints described in Revelation chapter 20. It is also symbolic of the mountains of Israel, the land of unwalled villages described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, because all of these are prophecies of the same event, the destruction of the enemies of Yahweh God in the midst of the plunder and persecution of his people. This persecution and plunder would be instigated by Satan, which is world Jewry, who gathers all nations against the camp of the saints, and those nations represent the non-white races and the flood of immigration which Christendom currently suffers. But this day of vengeance was also prophesied much earlier, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we have also already cited here. We will cite it again because it places the reason why the children of Israel should rejoice at the appearance of their Messiah in an appropriate context, where in the Song of Moses we read, If I wet my glittering sword, and mine hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies, and will reward them that hate me. Rejoice, O ye nations! his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land, to his people. I omitted some words which were added by the King James Version in italics. Yahweh God should be glorified because he keeps his promises. His children should rejoice because he shall avenge them. The peace which Christ would make in Zechariah chapter 9 is peace with Israel, which Christ had fulfilled at his first advent. That peace was described in those terms by Paul of Tarsus in Colossians chapter 1 and also in Romans. The war which Christ shall make, described in Zechariah chapter 14, is the destruction of his enemies. It is described in many other prophecies as well, along the same lines. The redemption of his people can never truly be complete without the destruction of his enemies. And first century Christians understood that one necessitated the other, so they anticipated it even though it has not yet happened. But if he kept the first part, which he certainly did, then we should rejoice and glorify him because he will certainly also keep the second part, which appears now to be imminent, although imminent is relative. Thank you for listening. Yahweh willing, I will return next week with the balance of John chapter 17. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.